For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through uh, fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I hope you've kept your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, as we've just uh, heard it read for us. You know, as I came to this passage of Scripture this week and was thinking about it, I was uh, reminded of the first time that I met a very popular celebrity, Robin Williams. Uh, It happened as I was working as a parking lot attendant, of all things, in a little town called Tiburon, California. It was kind of a small, touristy town, and it was known that uh, on many occasions, different celebrities would make their way down to Tiburon to eat dinner, hang out with friends, that kind of thing, and they would often park in the parking lot that I managed. And uh, several other seminary students uh, helped to, to work there as well, and we all had different stories of meeting different celebrities. It seemed like I had the worst luck of any. I, I met the fewest, and so the ones that I did meet or run into there were, were few and far between, and not always the most impressive. But Robin Williams was kind of a, a, a favorite and beloved character in that area, and many people had seen and come across him. I had admired Robin Williams for a, a lot of my life. You know, when I was a child, the Disney movie Aladdin came out, and he voiced the genie, and there's just so many other uh, films and TV specials and interviews and things like that that Robin Williams had appeared in, and he's just a, a very affable, lovable, likable kind of guy, at least on TV, but I had no idea what he would be like in person when I met him. And so it was late one Saturday night as I was sitting in that 
parking booth when uh, a, a, a very nice SUV rolled up to the, the parking booth, and I looked out the window to reach for the ticket that the driver would give me, and it was as I took the ticket and looked at the driver's face that I recognized it was Robin Williams. And so I, I, I did my very best to uh, fight being starstruck in that moment and, uh, and to keep my wits about me, took his ticket, I scanned it, told him how much the, the total was. He uh, paid for it very graciously. Yes, even A-list celebrities have to pay for parking in Tiburon, California. Uh, he said two words to me the entire time, uh, and, and I left that encounter with Robin Williams uh, thinking of him in a completely different, not, not altogether different, but a fuller way than I had thought of him before. Having just watched him on TV and, and, and admiring him from afar, I always assumed he was kind of a, a nice guy, a likable guy, whatever. Uh, but it was not until meeting him face to face that I came to recognize in just the very short interaction that I had with him that he was um, uh, much more than just that. He, he was from every uh, perception that I had in that moment, uh, not just a likable, uh, affable, uh, easy, easy sort of person to get along with, but he was actually very kind and very gentle. He said two words to me that night. He said, thanks, boss. Have a good, you know, and, and then he left. That's all he said. But I remember just the kindness in his eyes and in his, uh, in his face and his demeanor. Uh, and and I, I, after that meeting, had a, a completely different sort of admiration for him, for Robin Williams, having seen him now face to face. He was altogether more than uh, anything that I had seen of him on TV before, and not just more, but, uh, but, but even better. And perhaps you've had interactions with celebrities or people that you've admired from afar that did not go that way. Maybe, maybe you were totally disappointed uh, or weirded out or, or, or you know, bothered by the celebrity that you met. But so often it is that when we meet people face-to-face that we've admired from afar, that we begin to see a little bit deeper into who they really are, and it changes how we interact with them and even think about them moving forward. So it was even after Robin Williams' uh, untimely death a few years ago that uh, oddly, and I, I can't explain why, but I was particularly and deeply saddened by his passing because of the interaction that I had with him and the way that it changed how I perceived him. Well, so this is also true in a sense, but, but more so with Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is in these verses, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, revealing to us, uh, kind of pulling back the curtain on the person that is Jesus, uh, on the different aspects of his personality and how we relate to him as Savior. And he does so in a way that reveals that Jesus is, is far more than maybe what we would gather about him at first glance. In these verses, we see Jesus, the founder of our salvation, who is king over the world that is to come, who is brother to the redeemed, and who is a great high priest who makes atonement for our sin. This morning, as we look at these verses this morning, I want us to, to grasp uh, this main idea that, that is driving through these verses, that Jesus, the founder, the author, the originator of our salvation, is our eminently relatable Savior. What that means is that in his very essence, it is who Jesus is to be a relatable Savior to those that he saves. And as we see the whole of Christ in the redemption that he provides, I want for us to approach him in the fullness of his glory, having come face to face with Jesus and deepening our understanding of who he is to respond to him, to approach him in the fullness of his 
glory. So let's look at how the author of Hebrews describes Jesus to us and who he is. Specifically in verses 5 through 9, we see that Jesus is redemption's king. He is redemption's king. We read there, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. There the author of Hebrews picking back up on this theme that the son of God is greater than angels in order to say that even the world that is to come, that is this world which is made new and redeemed from all of the curse of sin has been put under the reign of the divine son of God. And then in verses 6 through 8, our author turns again to the Old Testament to cite from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Now, in its context, this psalm is a psalm of wonder and awe at the fact that God has made mankind to rule over the created world. And even as Adam was charged with naming the animals in the Garden of Eden and exercising dominion over the earth, he and all mankind after him have been crowned with a kind of glory and honor by God in this role in creation. But the author of Hebrews, in reading this psalm through the lens of Christ, uh, even as he has already shown us that we ought to do from like Hebrews chapter 1 and the several places he cites psalms there, He shows us that Psalm 8 takes on a deeper and fuller meaning when we read it and understand it in the person, in the light of the person of Jesus. You see, Jesus, in contrast to Adam, the first man, Jesus is the Son of God who does not fail God by sinning. And Jesus is the one who rules over all things, not just the created order, but everything in the created order and outside of it, even as he is seated in glory at the right hand of the Father right now. Jesus is the last Adam, as Paul would say to us in Romans, through whom are born not a race of sinners according to the flesh, but through whom are are born a people of salvation by faith in him. As king of redemption, as the monarch of our rescue from sin, Jesus does presently reign. He rules over all things. He is the sovereign king over the cosmos, reigning and ruling right now. Yet even as we look at the world around us, it seems that not everything is under subjection to Jesus. And the author of Hebrews says that. Now, I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing out of his control. We read in verse 8, At present, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The truth of the matter is that it seems that sin and sickness and death and trouble are still active in this world. There are still people and forces conspiring against the rule and reign of Christ. This present age where Christ is already king, but the world is not yet totally in submission to him, is an age that is longing for the fullness of redemption to come. Our world is groaning uh, as a a woman does in the uh, early parts of labor before giving birth for, for something better to come. So while we do not yet see the whole world in proper submission to Jesus today, we do see him. We do see Christ who rose from the dead, seated in the place of divine royalty at the right hand of God. Maybe you noticed, I hope you did, that in verse 9, we actually get Jesus' name written by the author of Hebrews for the first time. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is the first time in verse 9 Uh, of chapter 2 in Hebrews, that the author uses the name Jesus to speak of the Son of God. 
Up to now, he's always been referred to by the name uh, according to the, the person that he is of God, the divine person of the Son. But here we're reminded that the eternal Son of God does not exist in any sort of unnamed or ambiguous sense apart from us, but that the King of redemption, the Son of God, who reveals the Father to mankind, the one who died for sins and was raised again, is Jesus of Nazareth. He's a specific person. Furthermore, as the King of redemption, it was Jesus who stood in the place of his people to bear their penalty for sin at the cross. You know, kings are almost everywhere in the world in ancient times and today understood as figureheads for the people of their kingdoms. So wherever the king is, there is the kingdom. Wherever the king is present, there the, the kingdom that he rules over is represented. And so in the game of chess, when the king is defeated, the entire side is defeated, irrespective of how many different uh, pieces remain on the board. And when the king is victorious, all of the kingdom is victorious. We're reminded in Scripture that the just earnings for our sin against God, the penalty for our sin, for our rebellion against God, is death. What we deserve for rejecting God's authority in our life is both physical and spiritual death. But in Christ, in Jesus, the King of our redemption, there is a King who stands in our place, who is our representative, who receives on our behalf the penalty of sin. He stands in, in our place for sins as he gives his life on the cross. Verse 9 says, By the grace of God, he, Jesus, the king of our redemption, tasted death for everyone. He does this so that any who come to him as king by faith might taste the victory that he has received over death in his resurrection. Jesus is redemption's king. But Jesus is also, in verses 10 through 13, the brother of the redeemed. Jesus is brother to those who are saved by grace through faith in him. We come to understand in verse 10 that God the Father saw it most appropriate, most fitting to bring salvation to sinners by making their Savior perfect and complete through suffering. The author of Hebrews says it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, speaking of God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, speaking of those who would be saved by grace through faith in Jesus, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The question that may linger in our minds at this point is this. Could God have made salvation possible by another way, another way beside Jesus dying for sins? Could God have made our forgiveness of sins and and our eternal life with him possible any other way than through the suffering of Jesus? And the answer must be, in light of the omnipotence of God, his, his unending power, his unending ability to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, the answer to that question must be, yes, it was possible. It was possible for God to make salvation, uh, 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 to bring salvation to humanity another way, But as scripture tells us, it would not have been fitting. It would not have been appropriate. It would not have been most proper. It would not have been the best, most glorious, beautiful, and effective way of salvation. Asking the question, could God have made salvation possible by another way besides Jesus dying for sins, is kind of like asking, could I transport an elephant from one place to another in the back of a dump truck? Well, I suppose you could, but it just doesn't seem appropriate, does it? 
If you were to see an elephant riding in the back of a dump truck down I-40 in the middle of Albuquerque, my guess is you would look at that two or three different times with your head cocked a certain way, squinting at it just so to make sure that you're seeing what you're really seeing. It's strange to transport an elephant in a dump truck, given that there are other available and more fitting vehicles for transporting elephants. In the same way, could God have saved humanity, given us the, the uh, prospect of redemption from sin any other way than, than by Jesus dying for sins? Yes, but it would have left all of us going, I, I mean, I suppose that works, but I'm not really sure. There's something not quite fitting about that. Jesus, who is the founder, who's the author, the originator of our salvation, as our author in Hebrews says, is made perfectly so. He has made our Savior in the most perfect, most fitting, most appropriate, most beautiful, most glorious way by His suffering, by His death for sinners. And in order to suffer for sins, for human beings, the most perfect, the most fitting, the most appropriate way, the Son of God had to share fully in what it means to be human. He had to share fully in the human experience. And so He did this willingly, obeying the will of of God the Father. Jesus the Son obeyed the Father to become human, live among us that he might suffer and die for sins. And as Jesus obeys the will of the Father, he becomes the rescuer of all who are saved by faith in him according to the will of God. And so in this way, both Jesus and Christians who have come to trust him for salvation have God the Father as the very same one whose will that they are in concert with. Jesus obeying the will of the Father to suffer for humanity and humankind trusting Jesus according to the will of God as their sole source of salvation. So then being joined to Christ in this way as we're joined to Christ by faith in him as he's completing the will of Father and we're living in concert with his will by trusting Jesus. We are with Christ in the center of the Father's will, sharing with him in the fullness of human existence. And as he shares the fullness of what it means to be human, he takes joy in being brother to the redeemed. Verse uh, uh, 13 says, uh, or verse, uh, excuse me, uh, 11 says uh, to us this, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. In the verses that follow, the author of Hebrews looks back to Psalm 22 here in verse 12, and back to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18 in verse 13, to show us that these words of Scripture, uh, these words of, of speaking about and praising God in the midst of the congregation, of placing faith in the will and trust in the will of God, uh, and being one among the, the children that God has given to them, uh, the author of Hebrews is putting these words in the mouth of the risen Lord Jesus, who leads us to worship the Father who sets an example for what it looks like to trust the will of God, who himself shows us and makes it possible for us to approach God in confidence. He is, in every respect, our brother. I am a big brother. I've never had a big brother. Uh, my younger sister is about three and a half years younger than me. Uh, and in my relationship to her as a brother, I've not always been a very good big brother. I wasn't always very protective of her, certainly not particularly nurturing of my sister when we were children. 
but I would venture to say that she would not have been disappointed if I had been a better big brother to her. I'm also sure that there are times when she wasn't particularly happy to call me brother, even in public, where she was ashamed to call me brother because of the way that I treated her and acted uh, toward her. It wasn't until we were both in college that we actually began to sort of get along and enjoy one another's company. But as the one who shares all that it means to be human, Jesus is not the brother that we are ashamed to point to and say that we are related to. Rather, Jesus is the brother that we all desperately long for. I'll never know what it's like to have a, a human brother. But Jesus is the brother that we all desperately long for. He's the one who is perfectly protective of his siblings, those who are joined to him in the family of God by faith in him. He is the one who is always looking out for their best interests and their greatest good. Jesus is the brother who puts himself on the line to see that his siblings, his brothers and sisters are safe secure and whole. And even for all of the fault of our sin and for all of our rebellious ugliness and inconsistent faith, he is, as the author of Hebrews says, never ashamed to throw his arm around the shoulder of the Christian and present us with favor to God our Father. Jesus is redemption's king, but he is also brother to the redeemed. Third, author of Hebrews shows us in verses 14 through 18 that Jesus is redemption's priest. Jesus is redemption's priest. Now in life, the biggest question that any one of us can attempt to answer is this, how do I relate to God? How do I have any relationship with my creator, with the divine being who rules over the universe? And the reason that we ask this question is because at the deepest level of our heart, we know that, that we are not in proper and free relation to Him. Even those people that, that come to believe that there is no God, even, even atheists or agnostics, even they are asking and, and coming to a particular answer to the question of how do I relate to God? Their answer to that question is there is no God, so I have no need to relate to Him. But still, it's a question that they are asking. The Bible informs us that we ask this question because there is an absence of relationship with God. That, that, that is the reason that we ask, how do I relate to Him? And that absence of relation exists because we are separated to God by our sin, by our conscious, willful choice to reject Him as the uh, kingly, divine authority of our lives. And the offense that we have made against God by rejecting Him as Lord, or rejecting Him as King, by seeking to, to be God of our own lives rather than Him, that offense that we have made against God has fraught our relationship to Him with all sorts of problems. What we need in our relationship to God is something, or, or better yet, someone to mediate, to go between us and God in relationship. But the kind of person that we need to go between us and God, the kind of intermediary that, that, that we long for is, is not, and, and the one who will serve us best and God's purposes best is not a neutral, uninvested third party who can bring us and God to some sort of cosmic compromise. That's not the kind of intermediary we need. 
What we really need is someone who can perfectly represent God to us in all of his holiness and righteousness and justice and mercy and grace and wrath. Everything that is God, we need someone to communicate that to us perfectly, faithfully, and we need someone who can faithfully and appropriately represent us to God. Doing so in both directions, without deceit, without deception, without dishonesty, and with the utmost desire for the greatest benefit of God and of those uh, uh, of us whom he is representing. And so it is, as humanity asks this question, how do I relate to God? How do I have relationship with the divine? That many of the religions of the world have created for themselves many such intermediaries. Some call them priests, others shamans, still others call them seers. Our Jewish forebears in the faith, uh, in the people of Israel in the Old Testament, had for them even priests uh, appointed for them by God to represent the people of Israel to him. God said that uh, those who were in the line of Aaron from the tribe of Levi would be those who would serve as priests in the temple to represent the people to God in the process of offering sacrifices for the atonement from their sins. And they would represent God to the people as those delivering uh, uh, by word and with uh, words of confident assurance of forgiveness of sin that comes through their sacrifices. But the nagging problem of even these God-ordained priests in the Old Testament was that even they were sinful. Even these priests needed the substitutionary death of animals for their sins in order to approach God on behalf of the people. Even the priests needed something to cover their sin, needed something to go between them and God. So then here in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews brings us to Jesus who as the eternal Son of God, who is, as we said last week, God of very God, who adds flesh and blood to his existence, becomes at the same time fully human and fully divine. Jesus is one with God the Father, and he intimately shares in all that it is to be human, and yet he does so without ever sinning, without ever breaking relationship with God, without ever rejecting the rule and will of the Father as that controlling force in his life and mission and existence. And all of this he does, as the author of Hebrews reminds us here, not to help angelic beings. There again, going back to this strain of Jesus being superior to angels. Jesus, uh, the Son of God, does not take on flesh to help angels, but as we read in verse 16, to help the offspring of Abraham. That is those who, uh, who, who would express faith in the promise of God and be counted righteous that way. Jesus comes, takes on flesh to aid fallen and broken sinners. And he aids us specifically by his dying. And in his sinless death, as verse 14 of Hebrews 2 shows us, tells us, Jesus puts death to death. He puts an end to the, the powerful grip of physical and spiritual death over the life of every human being. He puts it to an end. And he defeats the power of our adversary, the devil, in order to free us from slavery to sin, which leads to death. As Jesus dies on the cross as a sinless sacrifice, he pays for the full penalty for our sins, and in his resurrection from the dead, he overcomes even the, the greatest force, the greatest power that our adversary, the devil, wields, even death. Verse 17 tells us that it's necessary for Jesus to be human in every way. 
to fully take on the human experience, even to the point of death, so that he could be our perfect priest. We read there, therefore he had to be made like his brothers, made human in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He is a merciful priest in that he is able to relate to our humanity and to deal gently with us, never reneging, never uh, speaking less about God's holiness or our sinfulness, always speaking honestly about that, and yet also dealing gently with us, not revealing our sinfulness to us in a way that makes us feel less than or unable to receive God's grace or somehow unworthy of God's love, but in a way that shows us that even though we are sinners, that God loves and desires to have a relationship with us. And he is faithful. He's a faithful priest in that he does not lie to us about who God is as holy, who we are as sinners in need of his grace. And he faithfully declares to us the good news that there is hope and life, eternal life, as we give ourselves in faith and trust to him. And so where even Jewish priests in the Old Testament needed Atonement needed a, a sacrifice to, um, to pay the penalty that was due their sin, uh, to make propitiation for sin. It is Jesus himself who gives his own life as propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, for our lives. Because Jesus is God in human flesh, only Jesus is the great high priest who represents all of God the Father's holiness to us without compromise. And because he is fully human, but without sin, only Jesus can take us to the Father without hindrance and with full confidence by the sin-crushing power of his death in our place. How do I relate to God, you may ask, as every human being in the course of human history has? You do it. You relate to God. You enter into relationship with him through putting all your faith and all your confidence in the one who is God in flesh, who represents God in in perfect integrity and us with perfect faithfulness to God, Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle writes in Romans chapter 8 about the confidence that we have to approach God through Jesus this way. He says in Romans 8, beginning in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, against those who are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus? It is God who justifies. It is God who makes us, declares us to be right with him as we trust Jesus. Who is there to condemn us? He continues in verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is even now at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. That's what priests do. That's what intermediaries do. They intercede for parties at conflict, not to bring compromise, but to bring restoration and reconciliation. And so how is it that God brings us into restoration and reconciliation with him? Through Jesus, his son who is fully God and fully human, who can perfectly, faithfully, uncompromisingly represent both parties so that God and man might be reconciled. And this he does by his God in flesh dying for the sins of those who need forgiveness. What does this mean for all of us today? 
What does it mean for us that Jesus is the king of redemption, that he's brother of the redeemed, that he's redemption's priest? Well, it means first this, that we have received a powerful and complete salvation in Jesus. Let that sink in for a minute. We have received a powerful and complete salvation in Jesus. The modern anomaly, phenomena of infomercials reveals to us that there's always somebody wanting to advertise something new and powerful, some, some sort of product that will make our lives easier or make difficult tasks more convenient for us to accomplish. And the problem with infomercials, as tantalizing as they are, is that what you end up with, if you buy all the products that are advertised therein, is, is a, what you end up with is a bunch of very specific products that address very specific problems, but on their own can't hardly do anything about so many things. That little cylindrical egg cooker only cooks, little, uh, only cooks eggs in, in little sausage-like cylinders. Right? The, the, the scrub daddy only scrubs stuff. Right? N- name whatever... Uh, infomercial invention that, that you like or you're most fond of and see that it only meets a very specific, a very niche need in your life, a, a very niche inconvenience uh, in your existence. And, and it can only meet that one little thing and yet it does so very little about so many other more important things in our lives. This is not so with Jesus. We do not have an impressive but limited Savior we have in him both a powerful and complete salvation because Jesus is the king of our redemption, of our rescue from sin, because he's the one that rules with all power and authority over all of the cosmos. That means that he is powerful to overcome the problem of sin uh, in our lives for good, once for all. There is no need to add to Jesus another Savior or additional works of our own holiness to come to God. He alone is powerful to do it because Jesus is the priest and mediator of our salvation because he's the one that faithfully and rightly goes between us and God. We have access to salvation, access to eternal life, access to relationship with our creator without any prerequisite of our own holiness. What is it that we bring to the table of our own salvation? Nothing except the sin that required it. And, and so what is it that, that we bring to, sal, uh, to salvation uh, when we come to, to Jesus as the priest of our great salvation? Nothing but our need for him. And this is a good thing because he alone is perfectly able in his death on the cross, and his perfect sinless life given there on the cross and raised from the dead, he is able to bring us to God with certainty. And because Jesus is the brother of the redeemed, because he's fully human and shares in everything that it means to be human with us, we are not alone to figure out how to live in light of the salvation we receive by faith in him. Isn't it good news to know that we have an example of what it looks like and, and, and how it works itself out to be one who lives in perfect concert with the will of the Father, one who never rebels against uh, God's plan and intention for our life, one who shows us what it looks like to love God supremely and to love others sacrificially? We have that in Jesus. Dear friends, Jesus is not an infomercial Savior who saves specifically but incompletely. No, he is the powerful, 
king, priest, and loving brother of our salvation who saves us powerfully and perfectly. Know this, that we have received a powerful and complete salvation in Jesus. And secondly, we learn from these verses that we must relate to Jesus in the fullness of his glory. We must relate to Jesus in the fullness of his glory. I began the sermon by relating a time in which I met Robin Williams, that great celebrity, and how my meeting with him opened up my experience of him as an individual, as brief as it was, that changed how I related to and reacted to him as a person uh, for many years to come. It changed how I responded to his uh, untimely death. It, it hit me in a way that I had not expected because of that one interaction that I had with him. I was able to relate to him more so in the fullness of who he was. Robin Williams is no longer just the comedian that shows up on TV. He's no longer just the voice of the genie from Aladdin. He's no longer Peter Pan from the movie Hook. He was the guy that drove through with very kind eyes, the parking lot uh, there in Tiburon, California, paid for his parking and said, thank you, boss, and drove off with kindness in his eyes and generosity in his heart toward those around him. It changed how we related to him. And so as we come to understand who Jesus is as the, the king of our redemption, as the brother of those who are redeemed, as the priest of the salvation that, that, that he carries out for us before God, we must relate to Jesus, not as any one of these separate aspects of who he is, but in the fullness of his glory. Let's try to illustrate what we're seeing in Scripture this way. I'm, I'm a very visual person, and most of the time I'm scribbling on a whiteboard or a piece of paper the thoughts that come into my mind to try to show what they look like. And here's kind of the picture that the author of Hebrews is showing for us. He demonstrates to us in the first verses that we looked at today that Jesus is the king of our redemption, that he is powerful, that he's ruling over the cosmos, that, that he has authority to make redemption possible, he, he then goes on to show us that Jesus is our brother in salvation, that because he takes on the, the fullness of humanity while, while never giving up an ounce of his divinity, he, he knows everything that it is to be human. He knows everything that it is to be tempted as a human being, even as you are, and yet he does so without sinning. There is nothing about the human experience, whether it be the, the heights of emotion, of happiness, or the depths of, of sadness that Jesus is not well acquainted with. And he's our priest. He's the one that goes between us and God to make that relationship whole. Not to, make a not, not to lead God to compromise on his holiness and us to compromise on our selfishness, but to bring both of us, God and, and us, in reconciliation and restoration to one another. Now, to relate to Jesus only as king is to disregard the very intimate relationship that we have with him as brother and the importance of his intermediary role as priest. To approach Jesus only as priest, only as intermediary, would be to, to neglect the fact that he rules and reigns with all authority over the cosmos, and that he has this sort of uh, very intimate relationship with us. So you see that to approach Jesus from only one aspect of his existence, one aspect of, his, uh, of what he does in redemption and in his, the way that he relates to us and to God is to have an incomplete understanding, an incomplete worship, an incomplete relationship with Jesus. Now it's not wrong necessarily for us to begin our approach to Jesus from one aspect or another. 
Perhaps we, we, we've had very bad experiences with, with uh, authority figures, governmental figures in our life, those that, that rule and reign with authority over us. Maybe we've had very bad experiences with religious leaders in our life. Um, and so the, the best way for us to begin to relate to Jesus is one who... who um, one who was despised by governing authorities and one who was hated by religious leaders in his own day. We, we begin to relate to Jesus as our, brother, uh, uh, as our brother in the flesh, in humanity. And at the same time, as we come to know him more and more intimately as brother, we cannot ignore the fact that he is also king and priest of our salvation. And likewise, from any other direction. It's not wrong to approach Jesus beginning with him as being king or as priest, the one who brings us to reconciliation to God. But it is wrong to only see him as that because at the intersection of these three lies the one perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who took on flesh to help us to relate to our Father, the founder of our salvation. Jesus, the author and originator of our redemption from sin, is our imminently relatable Savior, And so we grow in our deep appreciation for the kind of salvation, the powerful and complete salvation that we have in him, even as we relate to him in the fullness of his glory. Friend, if you've not begun to relate to Jesus as Savior, do that today simply by giving your life in faith and in trust to him, believing he's God's son, who died on the cross for your sins, who rose again from the dead, who sits even now at the right hand of God the Father to reconcile you to him. You can begin your life with Jesus simply by trusting in him as Lord, as King, as priest, as your brother in salvation. But maybe you are a Christian and you're wondering what this means for you and, and, and how, how, how you live out the, 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 this understanding that you have a powerful and complete salvation and, and relating to Jesus in the fullness of his glory. Maybe what you need to do is begin by repenting to God for relating to Jesus only as king or only as brother or only as priest. Maybe you need to ask God through his Holy Spirit, uh, dear Christian, to, to open up your heart, your mind, to receive and relate to Christ in the fullness of who he is that your experience of God's grace would not be hindered by your, your inability or unwillingness to receive and believe these truths of who Christ is, the author of Hebrews displays for us. The good news is that because he is king, priest, and brother, by his very existence, Jesus is relatable. We can come to him with confidence. We can come to him and go to the Father with the assurance that we are in right relationship with him because of all that Christ has done for us. Jesus is not just a better Savior. He's the greatest Savior. He's the only Savior. And he is not one who is far off and distant from us, but one who is near and and imminently relatable. Let's pray together. God in heaven, thank you for sending your son Jesus that we might know you through him. Lord Jesus, we praise you for being powerful king, for being merciful and faithful priest, for being our brother and example and sibling in the kingdom of God. These are 
mysterious and yet wonderful things that we proclaim and have come to believe about you. And we worship you for them. Truly, there is no other Savior in all the world like you. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to these wonderful realities of who Christ our Savior is, that we might worship him in the fullness of his glory. This we ask in his mighty and saving name. Amen.